1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nathan Smith, host for the New Books Network. I have the pleasure today to speak with Kelsey Klotz, lecturer of music and the assistant dean for inclusive excellence for the College of Arts and Architecture at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, Today we're going to talk about her new book, Dave Brubeck and the Performance of Whiteness, which was just published by Oxford University Press earlier this month. To steal some good words from the inside flap, how can we, jazz fans, musicians, writers, and historians, understand the legacy and impact of a musician like Dave Brubeck? It is undeniable that Brubeck leveraged his frame as a jazz musician and status as a composer for social justice causes. In doing so, He held to a belief system that, during the civil rights movement, modeled a progressive approach to race and race relations. It is also true that it took Brubeck, like others, some time to understand the full spectrum of racial power dynamics at play in post-World War II, early Cold War, and the civil rights era America. Dave Brubeck and the Performance of Whiteness uses Brubeck's performances of whiteness across his professional, private, and political lives as a starting point to understand the ways in which whiteness, privilege, and white supremacy manifested in mid-century America. How is whiteness performed and re-performed? How do particular traits become inscribed with whiteness? And further, how do those traits, now racialized in the listener's mind, filter the sounds a listener hears? To what extent was Brubeck's whiteness made by others? How did audiences and critics use Brubeck to craft their own identities centered in whiteness? Drawing on archival recordings, records, recordings, and previously conducted interviews, author Kelsey Klotz listens closely for the complex and shifting frames of mid-century whiteness and examines how they shape the experiences of Brubeck's critics, audiences, and Brubeck himself. Throughout, Klotz asks, what happens when a musician tries to intervene, using his privilege as a tool with which to disrupt structures of white supremacy, even as whiteness continues to retain its hold on its beneficiaries? Uh, And with that, Kelsey Klotz, welcome.
0: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
1: Great. Uh, Can you you start us off by um, telling us a little bit about yourself and... How you got into this project
0: absolutely um i think this project kind of fundamentally starts in the place that a lot of uh i think a lot of projects start um for early career scholars it started uh in a in a graduate seminar and when when i was working on my phd at washington university in st louis um I was writing a paper on the Lewis and Stadium concerts. There was one particular concert that Dave Brubeck did with Louis Armstrong. And I thought that that was a really interesting combination of of artists and performers. And as I was working on these two artists for this paper, both Louis Armstrong and Dave Brubeck, I think I I kept finding myself drawn to Brubeck um, in part because I felt like he was telling a really interesting story that hadn't really been told at that point. Um, so we're talking you know, about uh, almost 10 years ago. Um, and the, the research on Brubeck at that point was um, sort of a, a good biography, um, a few articles here and there, a couple of, um, of theses, theses uh, and, and not a lot else. So there was a lot of room to, to sort of play. So after that, I, um, took a a sort of day trip to the Brubeck archive in Stockton, California. Um, the AMS conference was in San Francisco that year. So I just sort of extended that a little bit just to kind of check things out, see, uh, what that uh, collection was like. And that collection uh, turned out to be massive um, and was just very, very interesting and and had um, just so many different kinds of documents. And so that really began um, the focus on, on Brubeck. The dissertation kind of focused on cool jazz a little bit more broadly. So I was talking about Brubeck alongside Miles Davis and the Modern Jazz Quartet. And when I looked to kind of take this into a book form, um, I was really thinking about, you know, what, I, I was trying to think about what jazz studies needed at that moment. So I was thinking about the book in about, you know, 2017, 2018 in that time period. Um, and in jazz studies, we are, we are lucky to have um, just a, a, a really, just a wealth of, of lots of studies dealing with race, but particularly dealing with unpacking sort of the primitivist um, stereotypes and languages and discourses uh, that previous jazz historians had, had kind of begun the history of jazz in, and there wasn't sort of a sustained look at whiteness and particularly in 2017, 2018, in the, um, kind of, after, after the, the killing of Michael Brown, as Black Lives Matter was becoming, um, more and more of a, of a movement, it didn't feel like we needed another white scholar to talk about blackness. Um, and so I, um, decided to, to kind of take Dave Brubeck and, and, continue down that path and really think about uh, what it means to analyze whiteness in jazz studies
1: sure oh that's lovely and i to i guess to kind of like get started on that track um your introduction was a, it's a wonderfully succinct overview um for critical race theory, critical whiteness studies in particular, um, and feminist theories of performativity um, that you use in describing this imbrication of individuals like Brubeck, Brubeck within larger socio-cultural structures, like as you're, as you call it in the book, mid-century whiteness in particular. Um, can you start telling us a little bit about how Brubeck functions in this regard? Like what about his career um, is a, is enlightening for articulating or highlighting mid-century whiteness, and maybe what mid-century whiteness is.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So in the, in the introduction, what I'm trying to do is kind of explain um, that whiteness can be theorized as a performance. So essentially, these sort of spoken and unspoken rules, behaviors, speech acts that um, white people define, they redefine them um, over the course of centuries. And so these behaviors and, and acts sort of constantly recirculate as habits, they build on the performances of other folks, and they understand the the racialized body, or the racialized institution, um, as a site of legacies and behaviors and acts that again, they, they build, um, constantly on, on one another. So, um, when I'm thinking about mid-century whiteness, there are particular performances or, um, collections of performances that we see, uh, just done over and over again, that, that really kind of signal whiteness that show us whiteness. Um, so in Brubeck's career, what I thought was really interesting with Brubeck and, and why I've uh, you know found him to be a really uh, fascinating person to focus on is that we consider him to be um, a good white person, right? Like capital G, capital W, good white person. Um, and this is kind of on the, the work of um, Shannon Sullivan and a little bit on Robin D'Angelo. Um, but we consider him to be that way because he he sort of um, performs certain acts of goodness. He performs um, certain acts of what we might call now anti-racism, um, but he's also at the same time that he's uh, sort of becoming really invested in the civil rights movement, he is also at the same time still embedded in a white supremacist structure uh whether that is society writ large or the music industry more specifically that um his performance is always going to be um sort of mediated by everything that's going on around him
1: no yeah i mean that's in the chapter very nicely uh Uh, outlines that exact issue it's you know that I think that was my favorite bit where you especially where you talk about how much you know you like I think there's a bit where I what do you what do you call it like loving and seeing Brubeck perhaps was the end of the introduction so it's something to that effect where you just talk about your own relationship with doing this oh loving Brubeck yeah here it is on page 49 Um, and you just talk about your own relationship to getting to know someone loving the music acknowledging good acts that you know good acts in, in i guess the good the good white person acts as you're saying in, in in the scare quotes um all those things can still happen while still trying to unpack how like th- that doesn't excuse someone from these larger sh- uh, structural issues and you you do a lovely job in the, it, throughout the entire text of like pulling those two things apart it's like brubeck did a, a quote unquote good thing but also, the here are some other. You know, it's you, you, you can't escape from this larger structure that enables, you know, him to do the good thing in the first place—the so-called good thing, I suppose. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That was something. It's important to me because he, uh, yeah, he is of a he is of a time we might say of the mid-century, and it's not. Yeah, it's not my goal to kind of say, well, how dare you not do X, Y, Z things or keep these things in mind when it's, you know, 70 years um, ago. But at the same time, um, I think that ultimately, what's what's important to me is that we can learn from what he is doing, that um, we can kind of see these performances Um, and by performances, by the way, I don't necessarily mean them to be disingenuous in any way. Um, they might be incredibly thoughtful and incredibly, um, meaningful to that person, but they are still sort of when viewed collectively, something that we see sort of performed by white people and over and over again, but that these performances are, um, something that we can continue to learn from and i think that he in particular does his career has so many places where we we have have those moments that of of really a a kind of thoughtful reflection on on what he's doing and um and what he might have otherwise done
1: yeah lovely um, all right. To, I guess to jump jump into some of these performances um, and some of the some of the tensions and the historical details. Um, so your first chapter, which I should add, um, as someone who recently led discussion sections on the Dave Brubeck Quartet in conjunction with the Modern Jazz Quartet for uh, uh, the jazz history class, um, TFing with Michael Veal, um, I found this first chapter. Like it was the perfect, uh, coincidence, you know, of, of having to, having to lead this discussion, like breakout group while being able to review your book and your, your text was invaluable and in helping, you know, articulate, um, articulate and differentiate between these two groups that are so often just kind of lumped together as, oh yeah, here's that cool quasi contrapuntal third stream thing. Um, so on a personal level, it was the right time. And I love this chapter. Um, But to to open it up to the, to our listeners. um, So how did the critics, like jazz critics in particular at the time, leverage terms such as swing, counterpoint, fugue, et cetera, in characterizing and thus racializing these two different groups?
0: Absolutely. It was really all about who they used those terms to describe. And sort of again and again, in my work on cool jazz broadly, um, it was sort of kind of looking first at, okay, how are these jazz critics describing cool jazz? Um, and it was again and again, sort of using terms from European classical music or describing it to your uh, with European classical music or composers. Um, And or thinking about sort of moderation and control, that all of these were the words to describe cool jazz in the beginning. And they're also overwhelmingly listing uh, white jazz musicians as doing this. Now, something that I found really interesting was that that wasn't the case in the very beginning for cool jazz, that in the very beginning for cool jazz, the the first jazz critics are actually saying, well, actually Charlie Parker, he's like the progenitor of cool jazz, that he is performing cool jazz, and so there was this narrative um, that that emerged in the very beginning for the first couple of years that that kind of said, uh, yeah, Charlie Parker is doing cool jazz, and then you know we had Miles Davis, and Miles Davis is doing cool jazz, and so it was much more of an integrated conversation about. The performers who were who were doing cool jazz but by by the time we get to the early 50s and the mid 50s when brubeck is really coming of uh into his career that's when we really see this narrative solidify around cool jazz and white performers and a lot of what that what that is done to do is is or how that's done is sort of through words like fugues and thinking about counterpoint um, that these kind of specific European classical terms are, you know, these white musicians are, are performing them in jazz and isn't this, um, amazing. And then you have this sort of, uh, narrative that comes with that. That's just sort of adjacent to it that says, and because of all of these um, European classical elements, this is really thoughtful jazz. This is jazz that is um, intellectual. And isn't this just so much, this is, uh, there's a very kind of progressive narrative of like, oh, jazz was born, in um, the brothels, and it's progressed now to this fully mature form of jazz. Like it, it's very um, clear in its in its language, um, and so the way that the modern jazz quartet comes into this conversation in chapter one is that while the Dave Brubeck Quartet is doing things like improvised counterpoint. And I and I go into all of that and what that actually sounds like and how that works for them. The Modern Jazz Quartet is another group that at the same time is also doing counterpoint and is actually like John Lewis is performing and composing fugues for the quartet. And uh, they are not getting near the amount of attention. First of all, they aren't getting near the amount of attention, but they also are not being described for their use of counterpoint and fugues. The critics are still sort of, even when they're using direct quotes from Bach, or even when they're performing fugues, the critics are still saying, oh, but listen to them swing. And so they're really embedding them into this narrative of kind of natural talent and blackness and r- kind of hot rhythm whereas with brubeck we get this more intellectual strand uh, going on in the in the narrative and so that's sort of figuring out like okay what does whiteness sound like well it was crafted by these critics to to kind of think about it in terms of European classical music with, with cool jazz.
1: Yeah, no. Yeah. Be- beautifully, beautifully put. Um, I, I mean, it, as it should be, you just finished the book. Uh, but I also, I, I also want to, to hear you talk a little, talk a little bit about Ken Brubeck's swing um, because that, that was also an interesting thing because uh, in the way you just articulated it kind of a little bit on one, you know, this is, a little bit me characterizing your, your, your wording. Uh, so like the count, terms like counterpoint and fugue were used to uh, be coded or to signify whiteness, um, intellectual refinements, you know, the Western classical tradition, blah, blah, blah. Um, whereas swing kind of often carried that kind of essentialist, uh, primitivist, uh, Notion of blackness, but Brubeck himself also had kind of an interesting relationship in his own reflections on whether he swang or not. Uh, so, can you say a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, the when you listen to the Brubeck Quartet, um, at some point in time, you will hear a Brubeck solo that that really sort of, it uses straight eighth notes. It, it just uses straight eighth notes. Um, he will do that fairly frequently, or he'll do a sort of thing where he'll kind of come out of time a little bit and, um, he'll be, um, doing sort of a different metered thing, even before timeout, even before the album timeout, um, where it sort of doesn't sound like your, your typical understanding of swing. Um, and so this becomes a really important conversation that critics uh, begin to have around Brubeck um, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, Brubeck, his, uh, his star rises very quickly. His, his career really takes off very early. By 1954, he's already on the cover of Time Magazine. He's only the second jazz musician to ever be featured on the cover. Um, and so critics are wary of him. And one of the ways that they sort of voice that wariness is by talking about whether or not he can swing. And critics kind of land all over the map on this. Um, Generally, the critics who think that Brubeck got too famous too fast uh, will also say that he does not swing, and therefore he lacks like a fundamental feature of jazz. Um, Critics who do like Brubeck will kind of offer this sort of Moderated stance of like, well, sometimes he does swing and sometimes he doesn't swing. But isn't the important part about jazz that you, as the performer, get to choose like how much you swing? Um, and and so they're really trying to carve out this very careful sort of place for him. And Brubeck himself kind of says uh, basically the same things. I he says I I would say that I swing all of the times, but sometimes it's more than others. Um, and so he really uses a sort of variable definition of swing to to kind of carve a place for his music in the legacy of jazz history because by the 1950s this is this is incredibly important you have to be able to swing to be considered a uh, an important jazz musician so he also needs to sort of craft that narrative around swing and the critics sort of also Um, they know, I think, I don't know if if it's sort of totally conscious or not, but, but everyone knows that swing is sort of the fundamental element of jazz that, and that if you're saying that someone doesn't swing, that is a sort of important charge. Um, and it is a way to sort of discredit him.
1: Oh no, absolutely, and yeah, I've been as I as I was telling you, you know, a little bit over the email exchange. I I look at whiteness of a of a different sort, a little bit earlier in jazz history. So I've been like going through a lot of like Hugh Penassier's, uh the French critic, uh, and swing is like the concept, and he he's at it's not it's not always just so easy as oh here's straight eighth notes that 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 and here's swing eighth notes, that, that, da. you know, it's not quite the, it's, it's a whole almost ineffability thing going on. And it's, and for, for much of it, it's, yeah, it's, it is the best way to signal that this person doesn't belong if you say that they don't swing. So
0: it's a yeah, very and the, term. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is in these, in these, uh, conversations and there, there's really, there's like a span of four months where just, Critics are like one after the other kind of sharing what they think about Brubeck. Um, And they're, they're not defining swing either when they're saying that he doesn't swing. They, they just sort of say he doesn't swing. And so we're left to sort of assume what they might mean by that. And so it's sort of, okay, I think you mean the relationship between eighth notes but then, when you hear sort of black musicians talking about Brubeck and if he swings or not, and they're and they're mixed, um, like some folks are, are saying yes, he does, and some some are saying no, he doesn't. But um, there, they will also tend to go toward this, toward the idea that yes, yeah, swing is something fundamental to black communities performing jazz. Um, And so there is sort of a different type of ineffability um, that they want to claim ownership of um, as well. Mm
1: -hmm. No, absolutely. Um, So I guess to open it up a little bit to uh, the communities that Dave Brubeck kind of wanted to, well, whether he personally himself wanted to um, or how he was just marketed. um, In Chapter 2, you turn a little bit toward how he functioned within like a larger public sphere um, that was emerging in the mid century. So what kind of, uh, what kind of new audiences did he bring into jazz or was narrated as bringing into jazz?
0: Yeah, this is all the respectable folks um, that if in chapter one, where I'm primarily talking about how critics are sort of building this narrative of intellect around Brubeck and other white cool jazz musicians that in chapter two, we see how that, um, narrative of intellect is also imbued with this kind of side narrative of respectability that, um, he, uh, again, a lot of critics, um, Uh, some jazz critics, but in this chapter, I'm mainly focusing on sort of mainstream music critics that they see Brubeck as being very unique in the field of jazz because he's respectable. Um, So that means that he can bring in people like housewives, um, self-described housewives, that they are um, an audience who has been interested in jazz And who wants to uh, be engaged in jazz in a number of different ways, whether it's kind of playing jazz, composing, um, studying, uh, you know, having ideas about, you know, different forms that jazz could take, or just writing to their favorite musician. They, they, all of that is available in the Rubik archive that there were just so many letters from women and girls. Who uh, kind of wanted to talk about jazz with Brubeck, um, and his respectability was was sort of part of the marketing for um these self-described housewives so he did a lipstick advertisement and he says you know he he pretty explicitly for that one says the reason why i did this was so that we could spread the good news of jazz to people who hadn't heard it like the vogue readers so he has this very clear idea that like oh we can we can pull people in and we can kind of welcome them in and I can do that. Um, He's the first jazz musician to perform at the Music Educators National Conference to be invited to perform there. Um, and, And so he can kind of present this image of respectability and that audience can feel themselves like they don't need to worry about this jazz because he, of his respectability. So his respectability becomes part of their own, performance of whiteness in many ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's where the the audience in some sense can have some kind of personal, they use him as a, a prop to, you know, uphold their own identifications and their own uh, um, I mean, respect, respectability and whiteness without using precisely those words per se. And yeah, no, it was, I, w- I was just, um, I was just watching the the I think it's the most recent Miles Davis um documentary and I I thought immediately of your book when they started talking about the original cover to Miles Ahead from 1957 which the original cover showed um a white woman on a boat with a child, you know, very, very, uh, you know, jazz at Newport, you know, uh, type, type of, uh, type of scene. And Miles was less than thrilled about it. And it seems to be, uh, kind of a, a, a similar thing that people were hitting on perhaps, you know, it's obviously different. We don't you know, the books on, uh, Dave Brubeck. Um, but it's, but some, some of that, um, in like the larger kind of cool jazz sphere was certainly, um, also being leveraged even, you know, with people like Miles Davis who were pretty high up in their um, career by that point as well.
0: Yeah. And we, I mean, I don't talk about this as much in the book, but you can look at sort of the covers that Brubeck is doing and it's sort of in the late fifties, he starts incorporating a lot of modern art onto his album covers. And so that's um, pretty, pretty uh you know, pretty much linking visually his his music to some of those other another strand of sort of intellectualism um, in in that sphere as well.
1: Yeah, no, and I in a similar vein to uh, the second chapter where you you know you also talk about. Um, uh, his his involvement with uh, the Playboy magazine and that type of, like, respectable masculinity and his, his kind of uneasy relationship to the high life um, and how he positioned himself as kind of a family man. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit uh, about something that you mentioned earlier, which you pick up in the next chapter, about the Time magazine covers, right? Which seems to be... Touching on related issues So I, as you kind of mentioned there He was the second, I believe Of four four jazz musicians From the time period um, And the first one being Louis Armstrong in 1949 uh, Then Dick Brubeck uh, mm-hmm. Was that 54?
0: That was 54, 54, yeah
1: 54, And then he's followed by Duke Ellington and Thelonious Monk uh, A few years later um, Can you tell us a little bit about how that his his circulation within time magazine and how that plays into uh, this larger audience and and jazz history for that matter
0: yeah so in both chapters two and three i i would say that you're right i am really interested in how the mainstream press is talking about jazz so I, i sort of move away from the jazz press because brubeck is someone who is in many ways at the nexus of jazz and popular music, and then um, particularly later on classical music. Um, And so he gets written about quite a lot um, and very early on in these mainstream uh, publications. Uh, So in chapter two, we're looking, I look at Playboy and um, Esquire alongside sort of the ladies. Home Journal and Women's Companion, Home Women's Home Companion and Vogue, and you know these are those are the types of places that I'm looking in Chapter Two, um, where I really kind of bring in gender and and kind of what respectability means in very different ways. But in Chapter Three, I'm I really focused in on the Time Magazine article uh, for Brubeck and for the other jazz musicians that appeared in mid-century um, because. And I would say that actually what really uh, motivated me to get into chapter three, into the time covers, was really the covers, not necessarily um, the the stories at first. So when you look at all four covers um, next to each other, so you have Louis Armstrong, Dave Brubeck, Duke Ellington, and Thelonious Monk, the only um, figure that is looking directly out of the image is Dave Brubeck, that the other three musicians are all sort of looking off to the side, or they're they're in some way, just not there. It's not a direct kind of gaze straight out of the cover. And I thought that that, you know, it was my initial inkling that that feels like it's saying something about sort of who is allowed to sort of make eye contact, um, in this way with the cover. Um, so I did some more work kind of just looking at the time covers of those years and, um, found that overwhelmingly, um, of course, uh, black figures were represented far less on the cover of time magazine anyway, but, of those who were um, sort of presented on the cover of Time magazine, there were only three who ever sort of were allowed to look straight out. So one was James Baldwin, Althea Gibson was another. um, And then uh, I think uh, Muhammad Ali was the third. And um, it became very clear to me that while white figures were sort of allowed on the cover of Time magazine to look in any other, in any type of way, to the side, out to the front, whatever, um, that it felt like the Black gaze was much more controlled. Um, And so when I followed that into the stories, into the cover stories, um, what I found was actually sort of even less agency for the black performers who were, um, covered than there was for Dave Brubeck that, um, basically the, the time author came into the Brubeck interview, even with certain expectations of what a jazz musician would act like or do or say. And Dave Brubeck did not fulfill those expectations. Um, and the, the author sort of, Adjusted his perception and said, "Oh well, what an interesting and unique jazz performer." Whereas, sort of the uh, the authors for Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and Thelonious Monk write about them in these very sort of stereotypical ways that really tie into um, legacies of blackface minstrelsy stereotypes.
1: no yeah yeah what 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 was the the interviewer comes in and like orders whiskey or something and they don't drink so he's like oh wow he's that's not like the jazz musicians Mm -hmm. that i've you know or at least the stories that people like to tell about what jazz musician
0: exactly jazz musicians
1: and that whole nightlife is like yeah
0: yeah paul desmond tells that story and um yeah it's a it's it's a really interesting moment of sort of the ability of Brubeck to be seen on the cover, um, to, to kind of recognize him through kind of looking at him and taking him in as taking him on as a person, but also being recognized just as a person who has his own, um, agency who has his own likes and dislikes apart from anyone else, any other white persons.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Interesting. so uh, uh, later on in his career as we've kind of touched on a number of times or i guess i should say the first three chapters as you've kind of positioned them are talking a little bit about um, his reception his deployment in marketing his uh, claims to respectability his claims to other quote unquote new audiences Uh, but in the second or the Last two chapters, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, you turn more directly toward Brubeck's involvement in civil rights and some of the, you know, for, there are many actors going on here, but some of the more directed, uh, self-conscious actions that he took. Um, so could you could you walk us through a little bit about the issues of integrating or segregating his quartet and why that mattered for whom, etc.
0: <laughs> yeah. It seemed to matter for a lot of people. Um, so chapter four um, really digs into this historical moment um, kind of in the before and after this 1960 Southern tour that uh, Brubeck attempts to take. So he is meant to take a tour in the early spring or kind of late winter of 1960 Um and uh, this is arranged by, um, you know, a booking agent through a, a group of Southern schools. So this is a very um, kind of sought after type of tour because the tour pays a little bit more. And because it's being, it's block booking, um, because they're booking as a block in one particular region of the United States, the travel is sort of less onerous. Um, and more convenient. Um, so you're not sort of going all the way across the country and the travel costs are included. So there are lots of different ways that he's he's going to make really good money on this particular tour. Um, and they get to um, January of 1960 and the tour is going to happen in late January. And all of a sudden you see in the in the archive you see the itinerary cut by half. So there were originally 25 schools and 11 schools drop off of the itinerary. And then you start to see correspondence um, in the archive um, about sort of, okay, we need to figure out what's going on with the other schools. And so what had happened was they had sent the promotional material to these schools at the beginning of January. And the schools finally saw for the first time that Rubeck had an integrated quartet. So he had himself on piano, Paul Desmond on saxophone, Joe Morello on drums, both Joe Morello and Paul Desmond are white. And then Eugene Wright on bass and Eugene Wright is black. Eugene Wright joined the quartet in, um, Uh, for the European tour and, and, and the state department tour in 1958. Um, so he's actually been with the quartet for a while. Um, but he is new sort of in the U S to the quartet and new in, in sort of recording with the quartet. So uh, people, people just didn't know that he had an integrated quartet at that point. Um, and, uh, so the first 11 schools drop off the itinerary. They tell the remaining schools, the remaining 14 schools, like, hey, by the way, just we want to be explicit. We are an integrated group and we are not going to replace Eugene, right? We will be an integrated group. Um, and uh, an additional uh, 11 schools uh, also drop, um, leaving only three of those schools. So this chapter um, takes that moment as the starting point and then it sort of backs up and kind of explains how Brubeck got into, um, into civil rights protesting, um, into this big moment of sort of refusal of we are not going to replace Eugene Wright. Um, it documents a couple of, of different, m- mostly smaller moments. Um, and then it sort of then fast forward a little bit to, okay, now he's had the 1962 tour. What, uh, what does he do after that? And how does he get back into the South? Because Brubeck um, pretty is pretty clear that he does want to play in the South. I mean, I, I titled the, the the kind of front part of the title of chapter four is we want to play in the South. Um, he's very mm-hmm. clear that he knows there is an audience for him in the South, and he wants to get to that audience. Um, and uh, so it, it sort of talks about uh, the booking agent who's sort of responsible for the Southern region. It talks about um, how quickly uh, the Brubeck Quartet kind of made its way back into formerly, formerly segregated institutions, sometimes within a matter of months. Um, and often they were the first integrated group to perform at formerly segregated universities. Um and so there's, you know, there's a lot of danger there. And so where we sort of end that chapter is thinking about um, racial capitalism um, and thinking about the ways in which the music industry was not set up to support um, integration in, a, in an important way. It wasn't set up to support Rubeck's actions. Um, so we're talking about... Um, a $40,000 tour that he would have gotten in that time. Now it would be around 400,000 or a little bit more with inflation. Um, and he was able to recoup 18,000 of that tour. Um, so less than half of what he was planning to receive. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I'll pause there. We all, I also talk about the two albums that he makes in this time yeah. period that are... Specifically geared towards southern audiences towards he is southern, not yeah. sort of being subtle <laughs>
1: about that no 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 he is no it is it is pretty pretty there's there's a market that he is trying to uh to to draw <laughs> for sure yeah including including as as you as you detail um you know leveraging eugene wright and and sometimes as you also just noted and sometimes very dangerous ways you know Taking him into institutions that, whether he knew explicitly or not, depending on who had the itinerary and who was, you know, handling all the books, taking him into these uh, um, places where it, like, should there be a problem at one of these universities, it would be Eugene that would be experiencing some, some of the most danger. Um, aside from the financial loss but for the entire quartet. But, but he also uses, and as you also detail, his deployment and what got me into this, uh, this roundabout um, was the lovely description of Eugene's playing on those albums and some of the ways in which they positioned bass solos in such a way to try to kind of highlight some of these tensions and or perhaps ameliorate some of the tensions.
0: Yeah, I found that to be really interesting as well, that um, typically the bassist in the Brubeck Quartet was sort of never featured too much. And Brubeck also seems to have been pretty picky about bassists. Um, there's this uh, like document in the archive called Principles and Aims of the DBQ, of the Dave Brubeck Quartet, and it's dated 1954. And it's meant to be very general. Like, here's the type of music we want to do. and But very quickly, all of the bullet points start talking directly to the bassist. In like, And when I say directly, I mean, he actually names the bassist and says, no, you are not supposed to play this type of bass line. And the reason is because Brubeck would often do like a stride thing, or he might do his own bass line while the bassist is playing. Yeah, so like the bassist is sort of, I think probably from Brubeck's perspective getting in the way of what he wants to do. And so he when he is making that argument that he can't perform without Eugene Wright, I do think that musically he means that. And so he, yeah, in in that album is putting Eugene Wright front and center on the album covers and then giving him solos, performing his compositions. Um, and, you know, doing things like writing about what a wonderful person he is in the liner notes and sort of just across the board in these number of ways. But yeah, it is also, as I talk about in the conclusion to that chapter, Eugene Wright is um, maybe a little bit ambivalent about um, his role in this kind of protest um section. And while Brubeck got a lot of praise for um for canceling that tour and for other things that he did, um, Eugene Wright, because he was a little bit ambivalent and he kind of said, you know, I trust, he basically said, I, I trust, I trust Dave. You didn't have to cancel that. I would have understood. Um, because of that ambivalence, um, a lot of uh, he got a lot of criticism from um, the Black press, kind of saying, you know, you, you need to be doing a little bit more to support us. Um, and that was something that, that many Black, you know, Louis Armstrong faced that as well. Many Black musicians were facing a lot of pressure to do something, and white musicians did not have that expectation whatsoever.
1: Sure. Yeah, so that when they do do it, it, as in the case of Brubeck, it's 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 that uh, the, the aforementioned good deed, you know, it, it's something it's something of marked. Whereas, you know, for Wright, it's something that was expected of.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely.
1: All right, let's a slight shift of gear. We're we're kind of going away from the Dave Brubeck Quartet per se. Yep. But touching on a lot, a lot of similar issues here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I it's tough to formulate this question, the question for that I want to that I want to ask for chapter five, or right? I've I've had trouble kind of uh, formulating because there's so many dynamics at play, and you do such an expert job in the chapter of like weighing these various things. So I guess first can you just introduce us to chapter five. What's it about? Um, what are some of the dynamics that are going on?
0: Yeah. yeah. So chapter five is um, I think originally not a chapter I thought I was writing, but it was one of those that it just, this piece kept, um, it just kept kind of nagging at me that, no, you're not, you're not done. There something that needs to happen with this. So this piece, it's a cantata called the gates of justice. Um, and he gets this commission and, 68 and 69 and um, he, uh, from a a Jewish rabbi, this is his second sort of big um, choral orchestral classical work um, and it comes right after the quartet has, has broken up. And for Brubeck, he kind of says, you know, the world is in crisis and I felt like I could do something more important by kind of shifting to a more classical medium and kind of giving a message that way. So the Gates of Justice um, was, again, it was commissioned by Rabbi Charles D. Mintz, and it was intended to bring um, black and Jewish communities together. So there was this long standing narrative that um, in the beginning of the civil rights movement, uh, black and Jewish communities had been um, pretty closely allied. And then, by the end of the of the sixties, by the end of the civil rights movement, um, that that allyship had broken down. That um, uh, in like black communities were much more interested in um, autonomy and in their own agency and in making decisions for themselves, um, and they felt uh, perhaps patronized to by um, Jewish leaders in the movement. Um, And Jewish communities still, um, they had a very strong moral imperative to be involved in the civil rights movement. um, And a lot of that was uh, tracked to their histories um, and legacies of of suffering. And um, so this piece is, uh, you're right, it is, there's a lot balanced in this chapter, but this piece is meant Um, In part for a very specific context um, for the Rockdale Temple in um, Cincinnati, Ohio, that this temple um, was located in a particular neighborhood that in the 60s um, experienced a lot of white flight and became much more of a black neighborhood. And by the late 60s, that temple, they decide to move to uh, an almost entirely white neighborhood. So they moved from a neighborhood that was 92% black to a neighborhood that was 99% white in the late sixties. Um, and so part of what this cantata is meant to do is to remind that particular Jewish, um, temple, those particular, um, Jewish congregants that, uh, we've made this move. We, we are dedicating this new temple. Um, but the civil rights movement is still ongoing and we need to still continue to work on behalf of those who are suffering. Um, what I talk about in the chapter is I'm, I'm sort of constantly balancing sort of this cantata has a very kind of Jewish perspective, um, because it's commissioned, um, by Jewish rabbis. It's performed in a Jewish temple, and then it's performed at a broader Reform Jewish um, organization. Um, and so it's, it's always sort of forefronting that perspective. Um, and so what I try to bring in in that chapter is also that, okay, but here's the perspective from the um, from Black civil rights leaders and from Black folks in these communities about kind of their relationship with Jewish people. And so it's it's a very, um, yeah, it's a very complicated story. It's very hard to break down into, into a, a little bite-sized piece. Um, but the cantata does some interesting things it's, a, it's an interesting piece um it also you know does some sort of racially essentialist things just through the two soloists one soloist is a jewish cantor yeah jewish cantor style tenor and and then um a black baritone it's specifically noted that it needs to be a black baritone who, and they sing in an operatic style but also with like blue notes and kind of scoops and stuff and um so there's some interesting musical moments happening but um yeah it w- it ended up being a very interesting uh, a very interesting piece to kind of think about Brubeck at the end of um, the kind of formal civil rights movement and how he'd done all of these. he'd actually kind of done uh, meaningful actions in the beginning of the movement and then by the end he feels that the way that he can most meaningfully participate is actually to sort of make a musical statement instead.
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, which which you, you know, for for our listeners out there, the the text, uh, this chapter in particular, part of what makes it so dense is, uh, as you've kind of, not dense, but uh, uh, complicated and like breaking it down is because you so nicely interweave like the larger structural narrative, like biography, who was working with Brubeck on you know, putting together or picking out texts from various, um, sources, MLK speeches, the Torah, etc., the Bible. Um, uh, some of, uh, some of, uh, his, his, I believe her wife wrote a couple texts, his wife wrote a couple of texts as well. It, um, yeah. Um, so, so you jump between like the, the very particularity of this specific piece and a close reading of the score as well as jumping out to like these larger issues of like, what are, you know, you know, looking at J, uh, uh, Baldwin's uh, thoughts on whiteness and uh, Jewish identity of people at the time, in the 40s, 50s leading up, and your ability to not only follow and trace in like small analysis, in microcosm, in a certain sense, the, the work that's unfolding and try to unpack some of those racial dynamics, but also threading it into this larger historical neighborhood, or uh, not neighborhood uh, uh, narrative. It, it, expertly done. And that's why I was like, how do I, how, how to, how to make, how to bring that out in, in a semi-informal, uh, podcast interview. Um, but yeah, no. So yeah, I, I, I encourage, I encourage our, our listeners, uh, to look forward to that last chapter. It's a real delight. Um, not to, not to mention, you know, as you also, as you also mentioned, um, as well as the, um, you know, it, it, I, I believe, it, it, I, I I think it's around this time, if I'm remembering correctly, in uh, Nell and Wink Painter's uh, work, I believe it's the third enlargement of whiteness is,
0: uh,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it Jewish communities and Italian Americans? I, I believe, perhaps, mm-hmm. and, yeah, and so uh, Hispanic. But it's around this time, right? You know, so mm-hmm. like it's an interesting... It's an interesting time for Jewish identity at mid century. Are they white? Are they not? Have they been included? Uh, can they benefit from it while still trying to stand the aside? And yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cover you up there. Oh,
0: yeah. No, that's a- absolutely. I think that was the part that I was um, kind of wanting to talk about and also be very careful about. Um, I am a person who was not raised. Jewish, I was raised Catholic. Um, And so I was very um, careful about sort of the historical narrative, or at least I tried to be very careful about the historical narrative. um, Because I because what I really read was, yes, this is a moment of for the Cincinnati neighborhood, this is a moment of white flight. And um, this uh, temple is participating in white flight. They're trying to sort of do that in an ethical way I think but they are ultimately doing that and more broadly this is um, I I think a lot of reformed Jews in particular are thinking about how do we distinguish ourselves um, as like not being just totally white Americans we don't see ourselves that way but we are increasingly being seen that way and there's a lot of discomfort with, with that relationship.
1: Yeah, no, and you, and it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. All of that is just all unfolded into one chapter, you know, it's uh, not to mention the fact that we have Brubeck here kind of orchestrating both literally and, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, metaphorically this, uh, this relation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think if I were to sort of, um, just sort of like make really obvious the kind of performances of whiteness that are happening. Like it is about, it is about Brubeck. That's why he's in the title, but Brubeck is really just the frame that, he's a way to see other performances. So sometimes we focus on what he's doing. And we say we kind of point out like, oh, these are ways that he's contributing to this respectability. But often it's really talking about how communities are using him in their own performances. Um, So it's not necessarily something that he he has all the control over how he's going to be viewed and how he's going to be used. So if we're looking at chapter one, we're looking at jazz critics chapters 2 and 3 are kind of mainstream audiences and mainstream writers chapter 4 is that's really kind of the most Brubeck focused but it's really looking at the music industry and chapter 5 is looking at um, this particular jewish community um so yeah it's it's trying to kind of look at performances through the lens of Brubeck more than anything
1: yeah yeah no absolutely and and for Uh, The way that I thought about it going through the book, and I I remember having this image kind of like float into my mind when I was reading the introduction and uh, trying to and and appreciating how you were navigating Brubeck as an individual, um, as a well-meaning, quote unquote, good individual and these larger structural things and how ultimately what you're reflecting on are some of these larger uh, performances of whiteness, right? And, And in a certain sense, Dave Brubeck is like a prism, you know, and... There are many facets many sides that are going on here and each of the chapters kind of like shines lights through different aspects and he's not always the one shining the light you know it's not always an auto effective light sometimes it's critics sometimes it's the audience sometimes you know as you're setting up here it's this particular jewish congregation in cincinnati i believe um so yeah no that's an interesting i'm glad you brought that back up because it's it's interesting how he gets weaved in and out uh or with both centered, but also you know refracted off of throughout the entire book. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? I mean, we we, we can talk about the conclusion as well. Yeah,
0: if, yeah, you, if you want if
1: to you wanna just just finish out the finish out the text.
0: Sure. Yeah, do you have so... a particular question, or do you want me to just? <laughs> I mean, I was just going to,
1: as I've said, give you a little bit of a softball. Just oh, okay. why, why why don't you just uh, introduce us to it? We've we've jumped to the to the '90s, I believe, a little, little mm-hmm. bit later, um, in Brubeck's life.
0: Yep. Yeah. So. This is, again, another one of those um, moments that I really did not think I was going to be writing about. Um, when I wrote the book proposal, this was actually something that one of the reviewers mentioned was, oh, what about the relationship between Brubeck and indigeneity? And I had sort of a list of reasons, and they were pretty good reasons. Like the, the publisher accepted them as good reasons for why, yeah, I I think I won't be doing kind of thinking about Brubeck in that context um, uh, that had to do with, you know, he's, it comes about later in his life. Um, He really doesn't seem to meaningfully engage with it. Um, And so it, it, it just kind of appears in a couple of moments. But um, as I looked a little bit more deeply into it um, in the 1990s in the early 1990s, Brubeck begins to sort of, um, Gently, I would say claim, put like possible indigeneity. So, and of course, we know the '90s are a time rife with white people claiming indigeneity, indigenous background. Um, right. So he is part of that as well. Um, and he starts to he kind of makes that claim, and then Gene Lee's writes about it in great detail. Um, The
1: cats, the cats of of any any color. color.
0: Yeah, right. right. Yeah. And so what it becomes is Brubeck's claiming of indigeneity becomes part of this white backlash to what's happening with jazz um, in the 1980s and 1990s. So as jazz is sort of being um, having its renaissance moment in the 1980s and it's becoming institutionalized through things like jazz at Lincoln Center, Um, and when Marcellus and when Marcellus is working with, um, folks like Stanley Crouch and Albert Murray, um, there becomes a very contentious, um, narrative around who gets to define jazz and who gets to be sort of claimed as a jazz musician. And it's really tightly tied to race and racial authenticity. And a lot of white musicians and a lot of white critics and historians feel, um, pretty uh, precarious. They, there's like a precarity that they experience of of like, we are no longer the definers of this music. And so you have folks like, um, like you have books like cats of any color that are kind of explicitly yeah. lost chords that are explicitly advocating for like a more multicultural or a more white view of jazz. Um, and Brubeck sort of gets swept into this. you see him start to become in interviews in this time period, he's not only talking about this potential indigenous background, but he's also um, kind of he's he's also kind of becoming very defensive about his race again in a way that I hadn't seen since the early 50s. Um, right. the yeah, kind of so color
1: colorblindness.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. He has, he kind of makes that return to colorblindness of that there's sort of no difference here or there shouldn't be a difference. Um, and it, it really is a reaction, I think, to um, what's happening in jazz more broadly in the 1990s that you, you kind of can't actually, you, that indigenous moment is actually a part of the 1990s discussion around jazz.
1: Well, all right. Now that you finished this book, what are, you, what, are, what are you off on now? Like what, what Do you have a new project that's data lining up? What are you, how, how are you spending your days now? And wh- where can we look forward to hearing or, or uh, seeing stuff by you again?
0: Sure, um, I am right now spending my days um, quite often, either teaching or um, in uh, this uh, new position as an Assistant Dean for Inclusive Excellence. So in a more um, administrative capacity. Um, and, uh, but when I look kind of toward the future and places that I want to go next, um, I think that kind of inspired by the housewives of chapter two, um, yeah, they're, they're really kind of talking to me and I have a sort of interest in Marion McPartland. Um, but I'm really thinking about jazz and gender and the ways that, um, genres are, are sort of constructed in, within jazz and what authenticity looks like from a gender perspective. There's been a lot of good work, of course, by Sherry Tucker, but then more recently also um, Nicole Rustin-Pascal. And, um, and so I'm sort of excited to to join that conversation. Interesting, yeah,
1: no, great. Yeah, I mean, I, I know uh, I have big ears sitting on my, sitting on my shelf just waiting begging to be read i need to i need to i need to get to it um, in particular as i as i've told you my mind focuses similarly um as as you're kind of hinting at a, a great great deal of jazz literature centers upon you know either you know either people want to do like a the quote-unquote great man narrative of stylistic innovations um, or they want to talk about race um, but i guess in my own uh Definition there of bringing up the quote unquote great, ga- great man narrative. Um, gender often gets um, ha- or has been sidelined do- discursively within jazz studies. So, yeah yeah, and I, be, yeah.
0: yeah. There's just a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with um, folks who teach jazz history who um, they just don't, they don't necessarily know where to start or how to begin. Um, so that's really, the that's really the impulse is Okay. Let's, Let's continue to, to kind of create um, resources for that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. That's beautiful. Well, Thanks. Kelsey, thank you so much. This is the, the book was a pleasure to read. It was a pleasure talking with you. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, you're on your spring break, right?
0: <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> so
1: you should be relaxing somewhere on a beach preferably. <laughs>
0: Well, I just uh, got back from LA, where oh. it, you know, snowed. Uh, of so, course. <laughs> so my timing is just all over the place. But yes, yeah. there will be relaxing.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, I'll let you get to it. Thank you so much for coming in and talking and talking to me, um, and the rest of the listeners. And I, I'd be happy to talk to you again next time you you have something else you want to share with us.
0: Great. Sounds awesome. Thank you so much.